We're going to turn now this evening to the scripture that at least will be the starting point for what I'll be talking about this evening as we come to the topic of the Lord's Supper. I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read here verses 17 through 34. This is God's holy word, which he gave to the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church at Corinth. It wasn't all that long ago that I exposited this text as we were making our way through 1 Corinthians. But tonight we won't be closely expositing the text, but rather talking more about the, the principles of the Lord's Supper in general and skip around Scripture a bit and look at what the Westminster Confession has to say about the Lord's Supper. So we look at 1 Corinthians now, again chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us, at least for the moment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your holy and inspired word. We thank you that it is a word that can be trusted. You've given it to us and not left us to flounder around and figure these things out for ourselves, to guess at what your will is for us. And so we pray that as we study this topic of the Lord's Supper this evening, that we would take to heart the lessons taught in your word, that we might apply them well and serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, obviously there's a tremendous amount that can be said about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but 
in this series on what Presbyterians believe, I'm sticking to what the Westminster Confession says. We're, we're uh, sticking to those topics covered. And so uh, that's nevertheless quite a lot on this topic. Um, as it opens up and really summarizes for us the principles taught in Scripture about the Lord's Supper. The confession begins, Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world. I can just stop there and say that's just what we just read in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says then, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we know that it's something we are to do until the end of this world. And the confession goes on and says, for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. But also the confession goes on and tells us some other principles. The sealing all benefits thereof, that is of Christ's death, unto true believers. Their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Uh, so again, that's what we just read from 1 Corinthians 11 in part, that Jesus instituted the sacrament the night he was betrayed, and that by observing it in remembrance of him, particularly of his atoning sacrifice, we show forth his death to the world, until he returns. As we've already seen, sacraments are signs and seals of God's covenant grace. So they point to an invisible reality. There's something you can, uh, you can perceive with your physical senses that point to something that can't be perceived with your physical senses. And they are seals. They mark you as Christ's people and apply to you promises that God has made. The sign in the Lord's Supper, of course, is the broken bread and the cup that point to Christ's broken body and shed blood. In other words, they point to his death and his suffering prior to that death. And by faith, we are sealed as Christ's people the benefits of that death are applied to us as he is atoned for our sins. The sign also involves eating and drinking, consuming the elements, right, which reminds us that our spiritual life depends on Christ as surely as our physical life is dependent on physical nourishment. If you don't eat food, you cease to live. And you need Christ, similarly, 
Just as your body needs physical nourishment, your spirit needs Christ to be its nourishment, to continue living and growing. As we see in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 56, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And we see as we dig into the context of that passage that we see he's not talking uh, literally either about the sacrament of communion and certainly not about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which the notion offended so many people they quit following him after he said this. But but we do uh, know that rather he's talking about the very spiritual thing to which communion actually points. He says again, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So just as we eat the physical bread and drink the cup, and they are incorporated into our bodies, nourish our bodies, Christ comes and abides in those who feed upon him spiritually. And by sharing, as it were, his body, we show that that we all have a share in Christ. And thus we belong to one body together. And we see this in 1 Corinthians as well. In chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Or Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. So there Paul is pointing to both the communion, the fellowship we have with Christ, the union we have with Christ spiritually, and then because of that union, if you have a union with Christ spiritually and I have a union with Christ spiritually, then we are united to each other as well. Over the centuries, there have been many controversies. There's been a lot of confusion about this sacrament, just as there was about baptism we talked about before. One point of confusion has been the belief that uh, some have that the Lord's Supper involves a re-sacrificing of Christ. That somehow, and this is tied closely with the notion of transubstantiation, that if, it, if the bread and, and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ, well then uh, we're re-breaking it, re-shedding the blood, if that's a word. But as Hebrews 9.28 tells us, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. In Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Christ's body was offered once, not over and over and over and over and over, continuing to the end of the world. Hebrews 10.18, where there is forgiveness of these, which is referring to lawless deeds, to sins, There is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus once paid it all. And so the confession rightly tells us, in this sacrament Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or dead. So 
whether living or dead, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper doesn't do anything in terms of, of uh, re-sacrificing Christ as if that is needed. What it says is, but only, the confession rightly says, a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass is most abominably injurious to Christ's one or only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Be a little more politically correct, some uh, updated versions that some denominations have of the Westminster Confession don't say popish sacrifice, but say so-called sacrifice. But either way, we're talking here about the Mass, which claims to sacrifice Christ over again. And that, by the way, is why this piece of furniture over here that we place the communion elements on uh, is never to be called an altar, or as I've heard some people refer in some churches to the altar table. It's a sort of a hybrid kind of thing there, but uh, an altar is where a sacrifice is offered. And Christ has given himself once for all. So we have in Reformed churches a communion table, a place where the Lord's Supper is observed. And some churches that can feasibly do it because of size and space in their worship space will often have communion around a common table, which is a, a nice reminder that this is a communal meal. It's not a sacrificing of Christ all over again, but it's a remembrance, as he said it was to be, of his sacrifice of himself for us. Furthermore, the confession says, the Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use. That's what Paul is telling us to do there in 1 Corinthians 11, when he reminds us of what Jesus said when he gave thanks, and he broke the bread, and then he distributed the cup. And the confession says, after saying they're set apart from a common to a holy use, and to take, the take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves... So in other words, everybody takes the bread and the cup to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not there or then present in the congregation. So we read in Luke 22 of Jesus establishing the mode of the sacrament, and Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25, with, with those words of institution, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So all communicants then, because Christ's command is for his disciples all to take these elements, all communicants then receive both the bread and the cup. Now, traditionally in the Roman church, the cup was reserved for the priests only. So the confession goes on and reminds us also, because this is communal, and we see here in the context of of uh, both 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, that this is to be something that is an activity of the congregation, an activity of the church. 
The confession reminds us private masses are receiving this sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up, or carrying them about for adoration, the reserving of them for any pretended religious use, are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. You know, Jesus established the sacrament in the context of communal worship with his disciples. That's where it should take place, which is why uh, we don't have the practice in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of, of having communion at, at church in the morning and then taking the elements to somebody else to partake of them if they weren't participating in the worship service. So what we'll do if somebody's in a nursing home or a hospital or something and if they want to take communion is we'll go and have a small worship service there and we'll invite people from the congregation as they're able to come and join in that service and we'll have communion together because it's something communal. It's part of the congregational life. Moreover, the, the bread we see is symbolically and metaphorically the body of Christ. It's not, it doesn't literally become his body. And so we are not to worship it as if it literally is Jesus in our presence. He's present spiritually, but the elements themselves are not idols to be worshipped. Remember when Jesus first told his disciples, take, eat, this is my body, he was holding the bread with his actual body. <laughs> and they could tell the difference. Right? Uh, his disciples knew he was speaking metaphorically. And we learn that even more so. Alfred Edersheim, the, the scholar, the 19th century scholar, was so helpful in that with his Jewish background, able to, to look into these matters. And, and uh, we know that, that they're... The, the sacrificed lamb that was eaten on the night of Passover, they would often speak of his body of the covenant and his blood of the covenant. And here Jesus uses that terminology in establishing this sacrament. His disciples weren't confused that he was speaking metaphorically. To treat the bread and the wine as literally the body and blood of Christ, which is, by the way, uh, uh, now in heaven... And his human nature is still a real human nature. It's not in one place or more than one place at a time. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So treating these things as if they are literally Christ is idolatry. Nevertheless, we do set these elements apart from a common use to a sacramental use. So how should we treat them? If we don't treat them as idols, how should we treat them? Well, the confession reminds us this, the outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, with the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. In our preparation for the Lord's Supper, in our uh, our RP Constitution, we're reminded that it's, it's such as are used. So we set these apart from a common to a sacramental use, the, the portion of it that is used. So we don't have to then treat anything left over as if it is something extra sacred and you can't uh, do other, you can't throw it away or do, do some, dispose of it some other way or feed it to the birds or something like that. It's only such as is partaken of by God's people. Matthew 26, 29, and Luke twenty two eighteen, 18. In those scriptures, Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so we 
Notice Jesus still calls it the fruit of the vine. He doesn't say, this has now become my blood. <laughs> so but he's talking about the fruit of the vine. He says, I won't drink of it until the kingdom of God comes. It's still wine, not literally his blood. But there's a physical separation of Christ from the believer on earth. His body and blood are not here. But he is spiritually present. And so we do treat these elements as set apart from a common use while we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, but they aren't literally his body. But we do see also, as we get into that here in the Confession, the Confession says that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. So they're, they're pointing out that uh, transubstantiation, which, by the way, unless it's substance, not form. So it's not transformation, so it still tastes like bread and feels like bread, it still tastes like wine, but it's literally, it's actually in substance, the body and blood of Jesus, they'll claim. Well, the, the Westminster Assembly rightly said that's repugnant to Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us any such thing, and Again, it would, be, it would speak against Christ's human nature, and therefore it's, often, uh, it's even an offense to common sense and reason. So Jesus, in his human nature, ascended to heaven. He's not on earth, and therefore uh, his body is not here. It's not separated. He's not re-sacrificed. He's not broken up again. What a horrific thing to do to our Savior, to break his body again and again and again and again when he's already paid for our sins. So this is an offense, they say. It's, a, it's repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. And they go on to say, It overthroweth the nature of the sacrament. What's the sacrament about? It's about remembrance of what Christ has finished, not a continuance of his suffering. And hath been and is, they say, the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. You can look at the medieval church and see the way that the host, as they'll call the, the body, the, the, the bread that represents Christ's body, which they say is literally his body, the way it's treated. And people would use it superstitiously as if it were something that could heal the sick and that sort of thing. There were fears in the Middle Ages that, that Jews would steal the communion wafers so they could torture Jesus all over again. That kind of superstitious silliness and gross idolatry came about because of this doctrine of transubstantiation. Acts 3.21 tells us Jesus will stay in heaven until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Rather than being united to Christ in the sacrament by a grotesque eating of his actual flesh and drinking of his actual blood, we're sealed as his people and connected to him because he is spiritually, specially, and graciously present in the sacrament for everyone who has faith in him. So that's why the confession says, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in his sacrament, in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, Receive and feed upon Christ crucified. 
to receive and feed upon him with the visible elements because of his spiritual presence if you have faith. So it's not a literal carnal, fleshly, that is, eating of his body, but it's a spiritual partaking of Christ. And all benefits of his death, they say, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are there are to their outward senses. So just as you can see the bread and the wine, you can perceive it with your senses, Christ, who can't be perceived with your senses, is spiritually present. But notice also there's a rejection there of the Lutheran view of the sacrament as well, where the Lutherans reject the notion of transubstantiation, that the substance of the bread is changed literally into the body of Jesus, and the substance of the wine is changed literally into the blood of Jesus. But they'll say, rather, the wine is still there, the bread is still there, but the, the body of Jesus is injected into the bread, sort of between the molecules of the bread, if you will, and the blood of Jesus is injected into the wine. Famously, there's a an illustration of of uh, Martin Luther's debate with Holdrich Swingley, uh, and it shows Luther pointing to the communion table, which has carved into it, this is my body. He's taking the is very literally there, and not metaphorically. So that the body has to be present. But we, in the Reformed tradition, reject that notion, saying again that that is a, a violation of Christ's human nature as well as the notion of the notion that his body was to be broken once for us, that his sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. So Christ is as truly present spiritually as those elements of bread and wine are physically present. He's present for everyone who truly believes. As surely as you see, feel, and taste those elements you can know that Jesus Christ who died and rose for you is present in spirit with you. 1 Corinthians 10.16 again uh, says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? So by partaking of the bread and cup in the Lord's Supper, we have communion, we have fellowship, we have participation with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, with what that represents, with his atoning sacrifice, in other words. The sacrament then seals a believer as a participant in the atoning death of Jesus. So it's as if your sins, as if you died for your sins, so to speak, as if you paid the penalty because Christ paid it in your place. But what of those who participate unworthily. So we might have tares among the wheat. Maybe somebody's not really a believer. They've, they've professed faith falsely and they're partaking of the communion elements with us. Well, what happened to them? Well, we noted with baptism, in one sense, yes, there are covenant blessings for covenant children and things, but in one sense, well, you just get wet, right? If you, if you get baptized and you, do, you never have faith, well, you got wet. Similarly, what happens here? Well, you, you just ate some bread and drank some wine. That's basically all that happened, physically speaking. Though spiritually, again, there are consequences for the misuse of God's sacraments. So the confession then 
says, Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in this sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby. In other words, no benefit from the atoning death of Jesus without faith. But by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 11, right? That whoever eats this bread, in verse 27, or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. To their own damnation, the confession says. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or be admitted thereunto. So, if the elders don't judge someone ready for communion, they're not allowed to the table. 1 Corinthians 11.27, again, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So we have a responsibility then to guard the table of the Lord as best we can. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 6, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Not too awfully long ago, sometime in the last year or so, we remembered the passing of Gordon Ketty, who was a faithful minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church and wrote some excellent books in his time. And In a book on covenant theology, he has a chapter about the Lord's Supper. And so just in summary, I'll read what Gordon had to say where he said, The sacrament is a sign that instructs us in the truths of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us to save us and reconcile us to God. It is also a seal ratifying to us the promises and grace of God. That, that is, it really seals all the promises of the covenant of grace which were formerly sealed to believers by the Passover and all those other sacrificial feasts to which they were admitted, and more especially the promises of the New Testament better than the Old. God has covenanted to bring to glory all that Jesus saves and seals that covenant in the supper while the world lasts. Furthermore, it is not so much about us and what we bring to the table as it is about the Lord and what he has done. I think this is a great illustration that, that Gordon Ketty brings, brings to us. He says, In every meal we have ever eaten, we have brought nothing but our mouths and our desire and need for sustenance and good food. We love to sit down anticipating good eating. We derive great enjoyment from a fine repast. We rejoice to rise up from the table with an appetite well satisfied. But does our chewing and, our, and swallowing and digesting make the meal what it is? No. We just receive the gift and provision of the meal. It is the meal that makes us nourished in body and joyful in heart. We do not make the meal what it is, even though the meal is made because of us and for us. And, and we can add there, even if you're the one who made the meal and seasoned the food, <laughs> you didn't create those things. We respond to what it is and what it does for us, Gordon said. So it is with the Lord's Supper. God publishes his covenant in the Supper, and we respond in faith that looks to Jesus. Christ provides 
of himself and we receive him and our souls are fed. We are indeed called to renew our covenant with the Lord every time we come to the table, but he is the giver and we are the recipients of his free grace in his son Jesus. The Lord's Supper tells you who you are if indeed you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. That's Isaiah 54, 5. In the supper, God says, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. That's Revelation 21, 9. So respond in faith as you come to the Lord's table. Receive Christ that your soul might be fed. Yes, as Gordon reminds us there, we renew our covenant with him at the table, but it's actually Christ renewing covenant with us and giving us covenant blessings as he has promised. And as the apostle says, that we show forth his death, his atoning sacrifice for us every time we participate in this sacrament till he returns. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the sign and seal that we have of the new covenant in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Grant that we may ever receive it worthily and be thereby united with Christ and all his benefits as we partake of this sacrament that he established. For we pray in his name. Amen.